the historical lols, if you will. Adolf and pals take underground bunker. Will they live or croak? Roman guy given two names, August and Prince Pete. And who dared to attack Moore's Martian evacuees in Galicia? Plus, in the news, elderly couple discover a new species of giraffe that looks like Jimmy Savile. Those are the headlines. Time for a drink. The news bang, giving voice to the silenced minority, the facts. 1945. On this day in 1945, the world breathed a sigh of relief as the war to end all wars finally came to an end. Adolf Hitler, the short-tempered landlord of Germany, was found dead in his bunker after a game of Russian roulette went horribly right. The cause of death, a self-inflicted bullet wound and a cyanide cocktail, shaken not stirred. Foss. Hitler's decision to off himself came as no surprise to many, as his empire crumbled faster than a Wehrmacht sandcastle. With Allied forces closing in and the Führer running out of Fanta, it seems he chose to take the easy way out rather than face Stalin's kangaroo court. Joining him in eternal damnation was his long-suffering girlfriend, Eva Brown. Uh, Brown, no, Brown Sausage. Their charred remains were later found by Russian troops who were reportedly very surprised. In a somber radio address, Josef Goebbels announced the Führer's demise with these immortal words. He is dead. Long live me. I mean Germany. As for the rest of the Nazi high command, most escaped justice by growing ridiculous moustaches and becoming film directors. The end of an era indeed. 27 BC. Gaius Octavianus, or as he's better known, Octo Tentacles, has had a busy day today. First he invented the Roman Empire and then thought, why stop there? He decreed himself Augustus, which means the one who holds the record for most prawns eaten in a minute. The Senate, which is Latin for a bunch of old farts in togas, were not amused but didn't say much as they were too busy sunbathing on their tax-evaded villas. Augustus, or Gus to his mates, decided to give himself more titles than an upper-class twit at a yacht party. Imperator, Caesar and even salad dressing were all added to his name tag. Historians believe this was either due to an overwhelming sense of self-importance, or because he was drunk when he registered his Facebook profile. Meanwhile, the Pax Romana, a popular Italian pizza chain, declared an era of peace known as the Special Offer. Locals rejoiced as they could now get unlimited garlic breadsticks on Tuesdays without fear of being crucified, and that's just what the doctor ordered. It is easy to soon. 1809. 1809, and the Peninsular War raged on like an overcooked paella. French forces, led by Jean de Dieu Salt, or God's underpants as he was known to his men, had cornered the British at Corunna. The Battle of Corunna, or Custard Gate as it's now known in France, was a desperate affair. Outnumbered and out of sherry, the British under Sir John Moore, who wasn't even a knight yet, but got promoted on the spot for not wetting himself, fought like drunk bulls. The carnage was unimaginable. Muskets blazed, swords clattered, and one man lost his hat. The fighting raged all day until the French retreated back to their bedsits in disarray. Moore held off the Frenchies long enough for Wellington to sneak up behind them with a large cheese board and some olives. The British evacuated Corona, leaving behind only their pride. And some empty bottles of Sandeman's port. And so ended the Battle of Corona, a turning point in the war that taught us two things. 
never mess with Brits when they're drunk, and always carry an umbrella. News bang, smashing the flat earth of falsehood into four dimensions of fact. Here's Shakanaka Giles to fill you in on what tomorrow's weather has in store. A frosty morning greets us tomorrow, as if the world has taken a deep breath and held it. Expect temperatures to dip lower than a skydiver's stomach. But don't worry, you won't need a parachute to step outside. In the southeast, Londoners should brace for a blustery day. The wind will howl like a banshee in rush hour, making your umbrella more of a liability than an asset. The Midlands will experience a sprinkling of snowflakes, as if Mother Nature is dusting her finest china before serving up winter. Up north in Manchester, it's all about the cold. Tomorrow will be colder than a penguin's flipper in Antarctica, so wrap up warm. And finally, in Edinburgh, expect heavy rainfall that will leave you feeling like you've been caught in a waterfall. It's not quite Niagara, but it might feel that way. In summary then, frosty starts, blustery London town, chilly Midlands, icy Manchester and drenched Edinburgh. Stay warm and dry, and that's all the weather. Nineteen forty-five. As the world emerged from the shadow of global conflict, a decisive moment unfolded in the heart of Berlin. The year was 1945 and the Führerbunker bore silent witness to the demise of Adolf Hitler, a man whose name had become synonymous with tyranny and devastation. In a macabre end to his reign, Hitler and his wife Eva Braun met their fate through self-inflicted means, their remains consigned to the flames in the Reich Chancellery Garden. The news of his death echoed across German radio waves on May 1st, marking a turning point in history that would reverberate for generations to come. And now we turn to our correspondent Brian Bustable for further insights into this momentous event. And you join me here on the Eastern Front. I'm in Berlin, my home from home. The air is thick with war, like a teenager's bedroom. But today is no ordinary day. For today the devil dies and all hell breaks loose. Adolf Hitler, supreme dictator of Germany, has taken his own life as Russian troops enter the city, limits to take him prisoner. The sound of gunfire echoes in my ears as I speak to you now from this charnel house that was once a city, now just an empty shell pockmarked by bombs and missiles. As I look around me at this scene of devastation, I can almost hear the screams of those who died here fighting for freedom against tyranny and oppression and yet still their sacrifice was not enough to prevent 70 to 85 million fatalities worldwide due to this senseless conflict. It is hard to imagine how anyone could be responsible for such horror and destruction on such a scale as Adolf Hitler did during World War II when he initiated military operations by invading Poland back in 1939. But there you have it. Madmen exist among us who would destroy everything we hold dear if given half a chance. They must never again be allowed power over our lives or our destinies. Brian Bastable reporting live from Berlin 1945 for Newsbang. 2018. In a tragic turn of events, 
the year 2018 bears witness to a harrowing incident in Marauk Yu, Myanmar. Police opened fire on a crowd protesting the ban of an event commemorating the Kingdom of Marauk Yu's anniversary, leaving seven souls silenced and twelve more wounded. The once mighty kingdom, which ruled from 1429 to 1785 over parts of present-day Myanmar and Bangladesh, now finds itself at the centre of a heart-rending tale. To shed light on this unfolding situation, we turn to our correspondent Ken Shit. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you news from the godforsaken land of Myanmar, where the blood of innocence flows like a river of hot lava. It's 2018, and in Mrauk Yu, they're still living in the dark ages. The Burmese police have once again shown their true colours by firing into a crowd protesting the ban of an event to mark the anniversary of the end of the Kingdom of Marauk Yu. This goddamn kingdom existed from 1429 to 1785 and ruled over what is now Rakhine State, Myanmar, and southern part of Chittagong Division, Bangladesh. Can you believe that shit? They're still honouring some ancient monarchy while their people are getting shot in cold blood. What did these poor souls do to deserve such brutality? They were peacefully protesting against a ban on an event that commemorates their history, but no matter how much they pleaded for justice, those heartless bastards in uniform just couldn't resist opening fire. Seven innocent lives were snuffed out like candles on a birthday cake, while twelve others were left injured. And for what? For daring to remember their past? This is absolute madness. The world needs to wake up and put an end to this senseless violence before it consumes them all. We cannot stand idly by as these people suffer at the hands of tyrants who care nothing for human life. We must demand justice for these victims and ensure that those responsible are held accountable for their actions. Until then, let us honour their memory by spreading awareness about this atrocity far and wide. Let us make sure that their sacrifice was not in vain. Because if we don't act now, who knows how many more innocent lives will be lost in this never-ending cycle of violence? Ken Shit signing off from Newsbang. 1883. The year is 1883, and a seismic shift has occurred in the political landscape of the United States. The Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act has been enacted, marking a decisive break from the past. No longer will positions in the federal government be doled out as political favors. Merit shall now be the guiding principle. The United States Civil Service Commission has been established to ensure that appointments are made on the basis of ability rather than cronyism. But as with all revolutions, this one too may have unforeseen consequences. And to discuss these implications with me now is our resident political pundit, Hardiman Pesto. I'm here in Washington, D.C., outside the Capitol building, where President Chester A. Arthur has just signed the Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act into law. This historic legislation aims to reform the civil service by making government jobs available based on merit rather than political affiliation. An ambitious goal, Pesto. Do you think patronage can really be rooted out of something as political as the civil service? Well, Martin, President Arthur called it a stupendous reform, so he seems to think it can work. Though some senators like New York's Roscoe Conkling may not go quietly into the night. I can just picture old Lord Roscoe raging against a law that would limit his power to dole out jobs. How do you think he and his stalwart Republicans will respond? Well, Martin Conkling has already resigned from the Senate in protest, so he won't have a vote. 
but he still wields considerable influence in New York politics. I wouldn't count him out just yet. Conkling won't go down without a fight, that's for sure, Pesto. This Civil Service Commission will have its hands full if it truly wants to remove partisan politics from the bureaucracy. Too true, Martin. Though Commissioner Dorman Eaton seems an able administrator, and the law has support from an unusual coalition, good government reformers and machine politicians alike. Machine politicians support reform, Pesto? I find that very hard to believe. It sounds like someone's trying to pull the wool over the public's eyes. Well, Senator George Pendleton is a Democrat, Martin. Perhaps they see it as a way to limit Republican presidents from doling out jobs. Or perhaps Pendleton and Arthur see this as a way to dispense jobs to their own partisan allies, Pesto. I'm wise to their game. The public should watch this commission very closely. We shall see how it plays out. For now, celebrations and champagne toasts for the Pendleton Act. Back to you, Martin. I won't celebrate just yet, Pesto. We both know politics too well for that. Thank you for the report. Now a word from our sponsor, Fletcher's Castoria. When your bowels need unstopping, choose the gentle laxative for children and adults alike. Hey, Newsbang, pushing the boundaries beyond the known. Our reporter Ryder Boff brings us the thrilling tale of Frank McGee, the one-eyed wonder of the Ottawa Hockey Club, who scored a record-breaking 14 goals against the Dawson City Nuggets in the 1905 Stanley Cup game. The year is 1905 and what a spectacle on the ice it was. Frank McGee, one-eyed wonder of the Ottawa Hockey Club, has just skated into history. Despite being as blind as a bat in a smoke-filled room on one side, he set the record for most goals in a Stanley Cup game. 14 against the Dawson City Nuggets. Sounds like a gold rush, but with pucks. There's McGee, gliding across the ice like a one-eyed swan among ducklings. The Nuggets are scattering before him like frightened hens. He shoots, he scores, once, twice, thrice, no, 14 times. It's pandemonium here at the rink. And let me tell you about these Dawson City Nuggets. They've come all this way by dog sled and canoe to challenge for Lord Stanley's mug. But it seems they left their defence back in Yukon because McGee is slicing through them like hot butter with his hockey stick. I remember my own brush with icy glory when I tried out for my school team. They said I skated like an elephant on rollerblades and had the puck control of a squirrel in heavy traffic. Needless to say, my career was as short-lived as my marriage to Cynthia. But back to McGee. He scored more goals than there were courses at last night's dinner party hosted by Lady Agatha Snootypants, where I found myself wedged between two rather large baronesses who mistook me for an oversized napkin ring. This record of 14 goals still stands today like an unclimbable mountain or that unsightly mole on Uncle Jeffrey's nose that no surgeon will touch. So hats off to Frank McGee, or should we say eye patches off, because this chap has shown us that even half-sighted men can have full-sized dreams. Here with a report on the halcyon days of 1942 is our time-travelling traffic and travel reporter, Polly Beep. Let's hear about Carol Lombard's fateful flight. Greetings, you aviators of the skyways. I'm Polly Beep, your time-travelling traffic and travel reporter whisking you back to the halcyon days of 1942. Picture this. 
a glittering Hollywood star ascending into the skies, a vision of stardom and elegance aboard TWA Flight 3. The year is 1942, and Carol Lombard, en route to Las Vegas for a war bond tour, seems poised to conquer the world from on high. But fate had other plans. As we take flight over Potosi Mountain in Nevada, tragedy strikes. A navigation error by the captain causes our star-studded aircraft to crash into this towering peak in the Spring Mountains of Clark County. All 22 aboard perish instantly. And just like that, we bid farewell to one of America's brightest stars, Carol Lombard. Now onto some ground news. Traffic on the desert roads leading to Las Vegas is non-existent, but not for long. Expect a surge in visitors mourning this tragic loss. As we continue our journey through this bittersweet chapter of history, be prepared for traffic congestion unlike any other. You might say we're witnessing a stampede towards heartbreak and remembrance. So buckle up those seatbelts and prepare for an emotional roller coaster ride down memory lane. This is Polly Beep reminding you, when it comes to traffic updates in 1942, every road is a runway leading straight to your heart. News bang. The shock of truth tooth feeling the bite. Our next segment delves into the realm of royal sagas with our correspondent, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. She's your guide to all things regal, whisking you back in time to when Augustus, the first Roman emperor, ruled the roost. Nice and easy. Ah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the royal reveries of Sandy O'Shaughnessy. It's that time again when we journey back in time to a world of glittering gold crowns, silk robes, and well, I don't know about you, but I always think of palaces as being rather drafty. But let's not dwell on the chilly bits just yet. Ah. <laughs> the sun has set over the rolling greens of the Emerald Isle, and as I gaze out my window at the twinkling stars above, I can't help but feel a sense of wonder at the vastness of time and space. Ah. <laughs> now then, let's hop into our trusty DeLorean, or perhaps it's more accurate to say, our virtual time machine, and travel back to 27 BC. It was a year that saw the rise of Gaius Octavianus, also known as Augustus. Now that's a name that rolls off the tongue like melted butter on hot scones. Augustus was not only the first Roman emperor, but also the founder of the Roman Empire. Huh? <laughs> Talk about leaving your mark on history. His reign ushered in an era known as the Pax Romana, piece so profound it could make even Brenda from Sligo raise an eyebrow. Ah. <laughs> but what really caught my attention is this business about titles. Augustus had two official titles, Augustus and Princeps. Now, I may be no expert on ancient Rome, but isn't Princeps more like top banana or head honcho? <laughs> kind of makes me wonder if there were any other royal job titles that sounded like they came straight out of a sitcom script. Imagine if King Henry VIII had been called King Bloke, or if Queen Elizabeth II was referred to as Queen Lizzie. Now that would have been something. Huh? <laughs> the Roman Senate was another fascinating aspect of this bygone era. It was essentially the highest assembly in ancient Rome. Kind of like a cross between a parliament and a reality TV show where everyone tries to outdo each other with their eloquent speeches and political maneuvering. Huh? And speaking of manoeuvring, 
I recently received a letter from Patrick in Limerick who wrote, Dear Sandy, last night I saw my neighbor trying to park his car in reverse while talking on his phone at the same time. It was quite an entertaining spectacle. Well, Patrick, perhaps your neighbor is trying to channel his inner Roman senator. Ah. <laughs> After all, multitasking is key in today's fast-paced world, even if it means risking your car getting stuck in reverse gear. Ah. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. Another whirlwind tour through history with your old mate Sandy O'Shaughnessy as we bid farewell for now and head back into modern times or what passes for modernity these days. Remember, life is full of surprises. Some good, some bad, but always worth living to its fullest extent. Ah. <laughs> Until we meet again in Tales and Tunes and maybe even some royal job titles, keep those letters coming. And as always, See you later. The year is 1964, and Broadway's St. James Theatre has become the epicentre of theatrical excellence. The curtain rises on Hello, Dolly, a musical extravaganza that would sweep ten Tony Awards into its glittering embrace. Inspired by Thornton Wilder's play, The Merchant of Yonkers, this enchanting tale follows the exploits of Dolly Gallagher Levi, a matchmaker par excellence, as she weaves her magic to unite the wealthy Horace van der Gelder with his perfect mate. And now, to delve deeper into this theatrical phenomenon, we turn to our very own Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Ho! Culture vultures! It's Smithsonian Moss, your fabulously feisty culture correspondent, and I'm here to spill the sequins on a Broadway baby that's older than your grandma's dentures, but still kicking higher than a rocket on Red Bull. That's right, I'm talking about the grand dame of the Great White Way, Hello Dolly. So picture it, 1964 a year, when men were men, women were girdles, and musicals were actually about something other than cats. Hello, Dolly, bursts onto the Broadway scene like a glitter bomb in the St. James Theater. And bam, it's raining Tony Awards like confetti at a drag queen's wedding. Ten of those shiny suckers, people. That's like one for every original idea left in Hollywood. Now, let's talk about the plot because, let's face it, who doesn't love a sassy matchmaker meddling in the love lives of the rich and clueless? Dolly Gallagher Levi is the original Tinder, swiping left on society's norms and right into the heart of a crusty old millionaire, Horace Vandergelder. And let me tell you, the sexual tension is thicker than the plot of a Kardashian's memoir. The St. James Theater, where this shindig premiered, is basically the senior citizen of Broadway. But honey, it's seen more drama than a real housewife's Botox party. And Broadway itself? It's the Olympus of theater, where the gods wear tap shoes and the streets are paved with playbills. Now, the Tony Awards, or as I like to call them, the Olympics for theater nerds, they're like the Super Bowl for people who can sing the phone book and make you cry. And Hello, Dolly! was basically the Michael Phelps of its day, swimming in a pool of accolades and leaving everyone else to doggy paddle in its wakey. 
So there you have it, my darlings. Hello, Dolly. A musical that's got more legs than a bucket of chicken and enough charm to seduce your grandpappy. It's a piece of Broadway history that's still strutting its stuff, and we are here for it. Until next time, keep your jazz hands at the ready and your wits even sharper. Smithsonian Moss, over and out. A news bang, unraveling falsehoods with the thread of history. And it's time for a swift rake over tomorrow's newspaper front pages. The Times. Eisenhower, stay alert to weapon maker Snake. There's a diagram there of rattlesnakes. The Independent. Yanks get hold of Wake. That's a picture of birds asleep. The Express. Washing machine nuclear fallout victims doubled. That sounds serious. There's a pile of black underpants there. And the mirror goes with collision course ends in plane spotting tragedy. There's a photo there of Nelson eyeing his kippers. And that's all from us tonight. I expect you have heard about the factory workers in Manchester who played hide-and-seek for three hours last night before finding each other in the staff canteen? No? Oh well, maybe they were scared off by the underpants then. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. Thank you.